Corinthians, or uh, chapter 2 today, verses 1 through 22. If you need translation, hopefully you already have that code. Last week we went through quite an exercise, if you were here, making sure everybody knew how to use this translator app. And we had uh, Hamy shared in Spanish, and most of us were receiving that in English, maybe a different language also. So there are a handful of people here who know how to use this app, and hopefully if you see somebody wanting to use it, you can assist them. We always want to make sure that you can hear God's word, uh, see it at least in your own mother tongue. And so if you need assistance, make sure that you get that as we move forward. I'm going to read first from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, verses or chapter 1, verses 12 through 22. That's where we are. It's hard because you get 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 1 and 2. It's like all over the map. Because even in, in my notes here, I'm preaching from 1 Corinthians chapter 2 today. No. It's, we're in 2 Corinthians. We did 1 Corinthians already. But we are in chapter 1, verses 12 to 22. So let me read this first, and then we'll take a look at it together. Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relations with you, in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. We have done so not according to worldly wisdom, but according to God's grace. For we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand. And I hope that, as you have understand, understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us, just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. Because I was confident of this, I planned to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I planned to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. When I planned this, did I do it lightly? Or do I make plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say yes, yes, and no, no? But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. This is the word of God. Pray he adds his blessing to it. So last week, when we started 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we saw that God was the God of all comfort. Ten times Paul used that word comfort in the first 11 verses. And some people wonder, understandably, if God is present in their suffering. It's, it's, it's understandable. If you're suffering and things are going, uh, not going well, it could be a physical pain, emotional pain, you may wonder, is God really there because I'm suffering? For Paul, he spent a good deal of time saying that he knew God was present, and in fact, any comfort he receives in the midst of suffering is from God himself. That's basically what he was talking about, and he'll spend more time in this book 
discussing some of his, his troubles and his trials and how God comforts him even when he continues to suffer. He sees God as providing comfort. And he said last week, God himself is the source of that comfort. In fact, the word comfort has the same uh, root word in Greek as paraclete, which we said last week was what Jesus said. He was leaving to his believers. I'm sending a paraclete, another of the same kind, who will be a comforter, the Holy Spirit. So God himself is the source of any comfort that we have at all. And we made the point before we had food that food itself can be a great comfort. We all have comfort food. And even if we don't acknowledge that comes from God, it does. He's the God of all comfort. Anything you find comfort in, you can guarantee that comes from God. He's the one who gives good gifts, both to the righteous and the unrighteous. However, he says there is a unique way that the body of Christ can experience comfort that is different from those who are outside. Not only seeing a direct provision from God and having God's Holy Spirit, but he said through the prayers that are offered by others as well. In fact, he said two things. Number one, you receive comfort from God so that you can give it to others. So as a body then, if somebody's suffering, one of the ways God gives comfort is through you, through the body, through people. You are a source of comfort, especially to the extent which you also have suffered. This is what's beautiful about suffering when it comes to the body. You're not alone. Others have been there. And so they can speak words of comfort or offer even comfort food. It is awesome when you're in the midst of a crisis to receive the basic sustenance that you need. That is a source of comfort. So the body is designed to comfort one another. And then he says at the end, you help us by your prayers. So when he says, how do you help? One of the ways you actually help is by praying. It's not useless. Paul sees this as a very important way the body offers comfort. You help us in your prayers. Now Paul takes a look at God's faithfulness. He's the God of all comfort, and he's the God of faithfulness. And here's how his logic goes in these verses. God's faithfulness is most clearly displayed in Jesus who is both the fulfillment and the guarantor of all the promises. So Jesus shows up and he fulfilled the promises and he's the one who guarantees the promises yet to be fulfilled will come in the future. All the promises are yes in Christ. That's why we sing yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord, amen about 50 times today because we need to know that. In Christ they are all yes, amen, so be it. That's a final declaration that includes the ones that have already come about and the ones upon which we still wait. And on the basis of God's character, then Paul aims to be faithful in all he does. That's kind of how his logic goes. He actually says, I'm faithful because my God is faithful. He aims to be faithful. God's faithfulness and fulfilling promises to him and to all who are in Christ is an inspiration for Paul to strive toward faithfulness as well. And of course, there's a big difference. All God's promises come about. Man's, sometimes, well, we plan our ways, but things may change. And Paul's actually trying to explain to these group of believers, some of whom are saying, you know, we can't trust him, because he said, I'm going to come visit you, and he made an alteration to his plans. 
And they took that as evidence that he was untrustworthy. So he's trying to explain, that's not true. I actually am very faithful to my promises because Christ was faithful, God is faithful to me. However, sometimes circumstances change and you have to understand that's why I wasn't able to come and visit you again. That's kind of what he's saying right here. He wants these people in Corinth who are doubting his integrity to know that his intent is faithfulness. And he starts really in verses 12 through 14 by suggesting that this God of all faithfulness is somebody, because of his faithfulness, that we can also be faithful in our conduct and relationships. What he says is God's character shapes our conduct in relationships. That's what he's saying. I love how Paul's vision of faith is comprehensive. I know there are a lot of people who wonder if church is just about what happens on a Sunday morning, and that's it. If that's the case, you don't really understand how comprehensive faith is. Paul's here saying, the way that I relate to other people in relationship, it's, it's completely shaped by the God who saved me. So now he's done this, and this is how I interact with others. And I'm guessing most of you have interactions with other people throughout the week. We all do. So it's very practical, this whole idea of living out a biblical faith, because you're in relationship with other people. And Paul says, God's character shapes how I conduct myself with others in general. But he says, especially to this church in Corinth, even with you, being faithful in the way Paul describes then to these commitments has an outcome. And he says right at the beginning, this is our boast, our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you, in verse 12, in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. See, he's got something from God so he conducts himself with these people and he does it in such a way that he has a clear conscience. There was a commercial a while back for one of the credit cards, the priceless, I can't remember, what card was that? Anybody knows? Was it? MasterCard. MasterCard, and, and the idea was, like, what was the idea? Well, I just remember saying it was like priceless. <laughs> I don't know. I can't remember. So, it, but don't know what it says about the advertisement. I can't remember who it was or what the point was, but I remember saying it's priceless. You know, it's priceless. And I used to think, yeah, I guess the idea is money there too, but what about a clear conscience? I think that's really what's priceless, right? I mean, having, having that kind of freedom that comes from it, no guile, no ulterior motives, there's nothing hidden, there's no fear of being exposed for who you truly are. That's a clear conscience. And you know what? You don't usually realize how precious a clear conscience is until you don't have one. And then you think, oh, I, 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 would, I only wish that now that I was free of this too. Now the Bible tells us we actually all have guilty consciences if we're honest because one of the things Christ does is he exposes our hearts. He gets what's into the dark into the light. Then you have to be able to do something with it. And Paul experienced that himself. And he says Paul makes a big deal out of a conscience. In fact, we can spend a lot of time looking at all the times he discusses this. He talks about it when he becomes a believer and he starts proclaiming faith in Christ and he gets to situations in front of 
leaders in Acts 23.1 and Acts 24.16, he says, I have a clear conscience. In Romans 9.1, I've got a clear conscience. In 1 Timothy 1.5, clear conscience. 1 Timothy 3.9, clear conscience. 2 Timothy 1.3, clear conscience. It's a big deal to Paul. He wants them to know that he doesn't have anything hidden. He comes just as he is, and he recognizes he's a sinner just like they are. That's where he starts. And if we have a guilty conscience, we're held in captivity to it. If you've done something and you know you're not really presenting yourself or who you really are, you likely will put up walls to make sure no one finds out what's really happening. And eventually, if you put up enough walls, the Bible says you could have a seared conscience. Peter talks about that. There are some people who, so, who repeatedly do things, and because they're not dealing with it in the right way, eventually they just lose their sense of conscience altogether. You have to do something with it. Uh, my wife often points out, when you do something wrong, you have three options. You can blame yourself, you can blame others, or you can take it to Jesus. That's it. Maybe there are some other options. You could come up with some, I don't know. But in general, if you've done something and and it's just weighed you down, you can either just sit in self-condemnation, self-loathing, disgust. And some of you do. Some of us do. Or you know what? It's also very convenient to say, you know what? You're the problem. Society, the you, somebody else. The reason I feel like this is because you, you did something. You made me feel this way. It's you. You're the problem. Of course, that pattern happened way back in the garden. Everybody's blaming everybody else for what's going on. And God says there's a third way. And he's done this from the beginning. You can't bear the weight of what you've done wrong. I'll bear it for you. You can take it to Jesus. You can admit and confess and find forgiveness in Christ alone. Any other option is all about you and what you've done. This is the only one about what God and what he's done. And you see, when Paul conducts himself, he says in this passage, he does it according to God's grace. That's God's grace. He has done it not you. And you see, if that's something you embrace, the way you conduct yourself with others is very different. I've, I, I've known people who I think really get this. I find they're the most approachable people in the world. If somebody's done something, for example, to offend me, and, the, and I go to them and I say, you know, what you said hurt me, or it was wrong, or I disagree with you. Somebody who understands they're operating out of God's grace and relationship is not going to say, oh, yeah? Is that right? Well, let me point out about five things that you've done wrong. Or get defensive and shut down, or try to build an excuse. This person says, brother, what have I done to offend you? Tell me. I, I want a clear conscience with you. That's refreshing. I'm guessing most of you would enjoy that response. And if somebody doesn't treat you that way, eventually you're never going to that person. Paul says, that's not me. Yeah, he's brash. He comes across as a strong individual. He's pretty honest. But he should be very approachable because he says at the very end of his life, I am the worst of sinners. 
I'm the very worst because he understands how deep the sin goes in me. But he says that was show, that's so that God can show his unlimited patience and grace in me. Hallelujah, he says. You can approach me. So he's trying to show these Corinthians, when I come at you because we're dealing with these issues and he says some hard things, it's not because I'm trying to heap guilt on you without somewhere to go. My conscience is clear. I know how your heart works because it's mine. When I approach you with something difficult, you're going to come back at me with fire and these other people, but it's designed so that you can become more like Christ. And the only way you can do that is to go to him. The basis on which you came was grace. The basis on which you go forward is grace. And that is a freedom in relationship that allows you to have a clear conscience. And you can't put a price on that, MasterCard. You just can't. And there's only one way to get it. In Psalm 32, this guy is so weighed down with a guilty conscience until he confesses his sin. I can breathe again. All the fear of what might come from being honest, you know, before men, is nothing compared to what happens if you're not honest before God. And that's the only pathway to genuine freedom. In Psalm 51, he's guilty of, of adultery and murder, and he says, I, I can't hide this anymore. And he was fearful of the consequences, but what he found was a restored relationship with God. It shouldn't surprise you that in 1 Corinthians, Paul talked about a clear conscience as well. This is what he says. This then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear. But that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Whoa! You can do all these things before men. God knows your heart. And you don't want to wait until a day if what the Bible says is true. When you're standing in your own righteousness, your own motives, which are shifty and fickle. The ESV talks about being fickle in the next few verses, too. They change all the time. Don't you want to anchor yourself to somebody who is faithful all the time? And this passage is driving us again to Christ. He is the one who is faithful always. Everything in him is yes and amen. It is so done. So that's where we anchor ourselves, and that's God's grace. But see, God's grace isn't just some concept floating out there. It affects your conduct and relationships with everybody. Starting right at home, your place of employment, your community. See, if you're somebody who's attached yourself to God, you're operating and functioning and reflecting his character as well. And, you know, Paul puts some very practical statements here as well. You know, what does this really look like? God's character, fine. We get a clear conscience, but how do we do it? And he says the pathway to really understanding that is, at least for him, the one thing he's focusing on is we conducted ourselves in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. And some of your translations may have integrity, holiness as integrity. Together, these two, holiness and sincerity, signal 
a transparency, a candor, an honesty, just being genuine. William Barclay argues this describes an object that can be held up and examined with the sun shining through it. That's how you conduct yourselves with others. There's something you can see and it's transparent. You can see right through it. Am I being honest about my feelings with other people? Am I being clear about my intentions? You know, is what I'm doing honoring to others? Do I have their interests in mind and not my own? Will I have a clear conscience if I say or do this thing? Those are just kind of basic standard ways that seem to drive Paul's thoughts, which are important to him because they reflect the God that he serves. And he says that really the guide then for what this looks like is the wisdom that comes from God's grace, which we've already discussed a little bit. You know, wisdom is knowledge rightly applied. Um, and when I say rightly applied, it's applied at the right time and the right way to the right amount. That's kind of what it is. And knowledge, by the way, is not something you just download from a chat AI, chat GPT AI, something, whatever. That's information, but it's not wisdom. It's just data. God's word tells us how to live well, wisely, and God's people, too. See, he drives us back to people. Where You want to become wise? You walk with the wise. You want to become a fool? Just keep hanging out with the same people you're hanging out with. If, you're, if they're fools. And so he says, if we want to just conduct ourselves well in relationships, you see, be committed to being sincere, to having integrity, to walking in a way that's guided by the wisdom God provides, which is manifest in his grace. And that is a different standard than the world's. If your idea about how to live life well comes mainly from social media and whatever, that's not godly wisdom, necessarily. I know some people have found ways to use it beneficially. Awesome. But it seems like a lot of content is not anchored or rooted in a source that is godly wisdom. It's a different standard. And, and, and really, if you walk in this kind of wisdom, it, it enables you to do things that other wisdom cannot. For example, when Jesus says, love your enemies, how in the world can you possibly do that? You look at the world, Jesus says, you look at the world, everybody loves each other if there's agreement. You're called to a different standard, to love the people who you disagree with. And by the way, keep that in mind during a political season that is upcoming, even within the church, because it can be very divisive. And, you know, it's loving your enemies. You didn't realize you were sitting next to them, did you? <laughs> so God's character shapes our conduct and relationships. And then he goes on to say in this next passage that, God's character shapes our approach to planning and commitment. So he gets super practical here, too. He says, I was planning to come visit you, you know, in Macedonia, and they're taking up an offering, as we'll see a little bit later, but his plans changed. And part of that had to do with other circumstances and even, is it good for me to come? So his intent was to go, but he ended up not going. And they're criticizing him for that. And Paul wants them to know at the very beginning, when I plan, I do it with God's faithfulness in mind as well. That's why he's the God of all faithfulness, right? According to, to Paul, he doesn't take things lightly. He weighs the cost when he's making his plans. He's got his planner, his Google calendar in front of him or whatever. 
And he says, I'm going to make sure I do some intentional planning uh, when I say yes or no to commitments, especially as they involve people. And then he sticks to his word. In verse 17, he says, do I, did I do this lightly? No. Did, did, do I do it in a worldly manner? A double yes and a double no? You know, when somebody says, will you be there? And you say yes. And then what you really mean is no. But that person didn't know because you said yes. <laughs> he says, I, I'm very serious about my commitments. And God's faithfulness is my guide. The, this idea of a worldly manner in verse 17 can translate as fleshly manner in other versions. And in the Bible, the flesh is always set on serving self. So you're making your plans in a way that says, how will it benefit me exclusively? Instead of saying, how does this benefit God and his people and others? And yeah, I'm all for self-care. I get that. I'm just saying you have to consider as well how your plans are beneficial, not just to yourself, but to the people God's put in your life. Paul's kind of dealing with Ephesus at about the same time. I, I thought it was interesting if you look at Ephesians 5, Paul uh, gives a picture of marriage and he says, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and laid, him, laid his life down for her, right? That's, that is a, a godly way to look at things. The world might say what's in it for me, even in the context of marriage. And Paul says, how do I lay myself down for you? That's how a husband ought to be thinking about a wife. I'm guessing most wives would say, sign me up for that kind of mentality because it's, it's a self-giving sort of love. And that's the picture he has in mind. How can I benefit others as well? You know, marriage gets an understandably bad rap within the church. And you've heard stats that divorce is as high inside the church as it is outside the church. And some of you may be interested in Nancy Piercy, if you're familiar with her. Uh, has written a, a new book called The Toxic War on Masculinity. And she does a whole bunch of research that actually indicates if you're a faithful follower of Christ in the way that Paul's talking about now, you have a vibrant, real relationship with Jesus, and you care about things like Ephesians 5, the statistics for divorce are very small in, in, in committed relationships like that. So many people just say, I'm a Christian, and they get included. It's actually not, it is distinctive. If you're really committed to this, if you're con concerned about your conduct and relationships, if you want to go forward with sincerity and integrity and holiness, if you know that God's grace has been so lavished on you, you don't have a leg to stand on when it comes to somebody who has offended you, and so you say, I'm there too, I will forgive you. That is, cultivates an environment that really is creating stable and beautiful marriages that last through difficult times. Not holy, but check it out if you're interested. And Paul says, I'm intent to fulfill my plans, but he's, aw he's aware that God can change them. And that's his point to the Corinthians. When Paul commits, he does it with God's faithfulness in mind. And God's faithfulness is demonstrated chiefly in Christ. Offering his son... I mean, look, he's using the same language, pointing always to what we call the gospel. As surely, look at verse 18, as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. Why? For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was preached among you. He, he came preaching Christ, and that message is the gospel. That in Christ, 
we receive forgiveness that we extend to others as well. And we will be faithful in that, and it costs something. Jesus laid down his life. So this kind of faithfulness actually costs us something as well. There are times when we'll be stung or hurt if we're going to be faithful in this kind of way. And Paul is committed to that. God offering his son was not a light commitment. It was an eternal plan. And our God is faithful to the end. Right back in Genesis, we see that promise after everybody's blaming each other. I'll provide a way back into relationship with me and I'll pay the price for it. And the whole Bible line tells that until Jesus shows up and says, it's me. I'm the one who was talked about. But the only way he can secure that is by dying. There's a severe cost. And yet, when he dies, because he dies, he takes on our sin. And when he raises from the dead, again, we're told, it's the proof positive he is the Son of God. He has paid the price in full. And so we can know forgiveness, not because of what we've done, but because of what he's done. And all those promises are yes in Jesus. And I have to say, that is rather distinctive. For those of you who were at the Call of Love banquet, was it last week or two weeks ago? Everything runs together in my head. How long ago was it? It was last week? Wow. It feels like a month ago all of a sudden. But So last week, um, one of the things that came out, and I've known this before, is that Allah is very capricious. You cannot depend on him. He can change his mind. There's no real guarantee if you're a follower that you're going to get his good grace at the end. I mean, you, can, you can get closer in certain ways, like by, by dying for him, but there's still no guarantee. And I've asked this question of multiple imams, so leaders in, in mosques, are you assured that you'll be with Allah? And I've never come up with an answer that says, absolutely. Because Allah is capricious. He changes his mind. Not our God. From the beginning, he said, I will make a way. He sent Jesus to prove it. And he says, that's the proof that I will make it all at the end. All the promises are yes and amen, sealed in Christ. This is why Christians love Jesus. Because he's the proof that God is who he says he is. He's the fulfillment of all those promises. And so you got men who are maybe fickle and even Christians who are kind of fickle too. And then we say, don't look at them, look at Jesus. He's the only one who's truly faithful to the end. He's the second Adam. That first guy, miserable failure. And guess what? You are all failures too. Big Fs for everyone today when it comes to your moral stance before God. You better attach yourself to somebody who's going to get an A. And Jesus is. He's a great student. He gets the A. He lays his life down. And I trust in him. And now all of a sudden those promises are yes in him. And that's where Paul ends up. He ends up by saying God's faithfulness is supremely demonstrated and displayed in Christ. I don't know if I put that up there properly. But no matter how many promises, God's faithfulness is supremely displayed in Christ. I, could, I, could, I had to get Christ up there several times, apparently. He is the fulfillment of past promises and the guarantee of promises yet to be fulfilled. This is so encouraging to me. I, when Paul comes in and he says, Jesus has, he is the final yes. When he came, all those things you were waiting for in the Old Testament are fulfilled in him. But more than that, 
Because he came, because he died, because he rose from the dead. All those lingering promises that you're waiting to be fulfilled are yes. Because he has given the amen in Christ. So when we live in this kind of waiting period too, where there's like real healing and we see it substantial and there's real forgiveness, but we're wrestling all the time with these internal realities in the world around us. So when Jesus rose from the dead, we have the guarantee there will be a time when we will not ever again. And Jesus is the proof of that. All those promises that we're still waiting for, so many fulfilled, he arrived some yet still to come, they're going to happen. He ushers in a new kingdom. His death and resurrection assure us we're on a time frame again when all will be made new. How do I know that? Because God's faithful. Paul says God is faithful. And I'm trying the best I can to live that out, but at the end of the day, I will disappoint you. I'll make plans to come visit you, and they'll change. But God's plans never fail. They never change. And the proof is Jesus. Amidst all the unpredictable realities of life, God's faithfulness is a fixed reality and our sure hope. Now, verse 21 says that God established us in Christ. And then he continues to establish us. He made us firm, but he also continues to make us firm. It's a present, ongoing experience. And that ongoing reality rests on three single completed actions. God anointed us. He says, that is, we are Christ's holy ones. We have his blessing. He put a seal on us. That's a mark of ownership and approval. And he gave us his spirit as a deposit. The spirit himself, the spirit of Christ is a deposit, a down payment guaranteeing what is to come. I think Trent Casto is a good job of summarizing all of this in his commentary on this. Every promise of God finds the yes of its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Where do we find those promises? In the Old Testament primarily, will God fulfill his promise to Abraham to bless him and all the families of the earth? God said yes when he gave us Jesus. Will God fulfill his promise to David to always have a king on the throne who will rule in righteousness and justice? God said yes when he gave us Jesus. Will God fulfill his promise to send a substitute who will die for the sins of his people and reconcile us to God? God said yes when he gave us Jesus. Will God fulfill his promise to give the Holy Spirit to dwell in every believer? God said yes when he gave us Jesus. Will God fulfill his promise that he will make everything new, wipe away every tear, and dwell us with us forever. See, there's the shift. He gave us Jesus. Those things came true in him, and now we're looking forward to the future. And God said yes when he gave us Jesus. Will God fulfill his promise never to leave or forsake us? God said yes when he gave us Jesus. We may have trouble believing in the fulfillment of some of these promises when life is not going as we'd hoped or planned. We know this for certain. All of God's promises are yes in Jesus. Everything God has promised to give us, he gives us in the person and work of Jesus. There's no other way to experience any of God's promised blessings except in Christ. The only hope anyone has of sharing in the promises God made is to have them fulfilled through a relationship with Jesus, who is God's yes. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. 
Yes, yes, Lord. Amen. <laughs> God, God is faithful. And that is the bedrock of our hope. And that faithfulness isn't just, again, a theological concept. It takes flesh in the person of Jesus. And then he fills us with the spirit. And we then conduct ourselves in our relationships with a clear conscience. And if we don't have it, then confess your sins. And guess what? This is a great time to do it because we're transitioning to communion. And communion is a, a, a real demonstration of everything that's talked about here. Is God faithful? Yes. He sent Jesus who shed his blood. His body was given for us. Is he faithful to forgive us? Yes. If you confess your sins, he's faithful to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You need to be honest with God, sincere. And he creates a pathway to restoration. And that pathway to restoration isn't just between you and him, it's between you and others as well. You'll have lots of opportunities soon to be in working out that kind of faithfulness. But if you're doing it in your own strength, it will fail. So we're drawn again and again and again back to the gospel and to God's faithfulness. That is the source of any hope we have for being faithful in our other relationships as well. We don't have to fear being honest because God has already paid the price. We don't have to fear the repercussions. God has already paid the ultimate sacrifice. See, this is incredibly practical. I don't know how to make it more practical. It just is. And to the extent that we're receiving God's forgiveness, then we'll be able to extend it to others. Have no fear. God is for you. God is with you. Why can I say that? Because all the promises are yes in Jesus. And here's the proof of it. So if you have know that is true for you, if you're a child of God, then this supper is for you. It's a sustaining grace. We do it repeatedly because we need that continuous reality. This signifies that we belong to him, that we're worthy of receiving him because Christ is worthy and he's the one who's made access to us. If you know that truth, then this table is for you. If you're not sure about it, then pass it up. Paul issues a warning. If you don't understand that this is about a faithful God, then don't, don't come and partake. First do business with God. Get ready and then you'll have access. Become a child of God. Say yes to Jesus. It's that simple. And if that's you this morning, then do it. Let me know. We'll get you ready to, to, to receive the Lord's Supper. So obviously not for people who are perfect. Or even if you don't have a clear conscience, confess it before God today. Endeavor to make it right. And this could be the very grace you need to receive in order to take that next step. That's who this table is for. Now what our custom is, is you come, we come down this aisle. You can take the bread and the, we have juice, and we'll take it all together after you've collected it to signify our unity. There's also a version here that is prepackaged, if you would prefer that, and a small wafer and some grape juices in that as well. Uh, so we'll have you come forward and, and receive the elements, go back to your seat, and then I'll lead us through taking it together. So this is an opportunity to be sincere before the Lord and to receive forgiveness and uh, remember that he is faithful. It was the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed. He took bread and he gave, gave thanks as we ministering in his name give to you. And he said, this bread is my body, which is given for you. Take and eat. And in the same manner after his supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for forgiveness of sins. Take 
all of you, and drink. So as you have opportunity, come down this aisle and then file back to your